1: Glad to have you with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm going to introduce the panel in just a moment. Uh, But before I do, uh, and I'll give them all a chance to comment on this, it occurred to me yesterday afternoon watching the uh, service for John Lewis in the rotunda of the United States Capitol, the first African-American member of Congress to be honored by a uh, service in – rotunda Um, this is gonna be a week of a lot of uh, tearful moments and yesterday there were I thought for me and I'll I'll be interested in if the panel got a chance to watch some particularly vivid moments first um, Nancy Pelosi uh, uh, gave some remarks that are we want to play you one moment of right now and then tell you about something else she did but here's just a very brief uh, moment from speaker Pelosi's comments about John Lewis
0: Here in Congress, John was revered and beloved on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the Capitol. We knew that he always worked on the side of the angels, and now we know that he is with them.
1: But then what Pelosi did was really exceptional. She um, stopped talking and seated the floor to John Lewis himself and played a relatively long excerpt of John Lewis talking to students at a graduation ceremony, telling them, don't ever give up hope, keep fighting, keep working for what you uh, believe in. Uh, and the other moment that I wanted to mention, and we're gonna have a link to it so that if you didn't see it, you can watch it, was uh, Dr. Whitley Phipps, who performed two songs uh, in a, this gorgeous, deep, baritone voice, um, singing Amazing Grace. And it was just a stunning, stunning moment. And as I said, we've got a link to the YouTube video showing him do that. And I really encourage you all to uh, take a moment to watch Dr. Phipps. All right, that's just my uh, thinking about what I saw yesterday. Tamar Hallerman, of course, is our Tuesday regular from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She's a senior reporter there. Tomorrow, I assume, when... um, Congressman Lewis's uh, body is brought back to Atlanta, as it will be tomorrow, for a lying-in state at the state capitol and then the service on Thursday. You're going to have some role in uh, covering at least some of that, aren't
2: you? Yeah, well, I was working the weekend shift covering all the events in Alabama, so I won't be in the front lines, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to be watching closely. And, you know, I've been—this is a weird part of my job, but it's something all newspapers and news organizations do— you know, we've been quietly preparing for John Lewis's death for, for months now. I, I started writing his obituary in December. And in general, yeah. I think I'm pretty good as a reporter separating, you know, my emotions from whatever I'm covering. But it was Sunday that I was just really overcome. And, and that was when he was in Selma, crossing over the Edmund Pettus Bridge for the, the final time. And And what struck me the most was when, he crossed to the other side and there was a row of Alabama state troopers saluting his casket, um, you know, right where 55 years earlier they were beating him almost to death. And there have been a lot yeah. of moments like that over the last few days where um, I found it hard to to kind of keep my composure. It's been a very powerful number of days.
1: Yeah, um. Heath Garrett is with us. I mean, we're glad to have you back, Heath, for the first time in a while, a Republican consultant, but known best probably, certainly to our listeners, as a, a close advisor, Johnny Isaacson's closest advisor, really. And Heath, um, it's fitting that you're on during the week that we are going to be off and on talking about John Lewis, because there is a very vivid display when uh, when your uh, friend Johnny Isaacson took his last lap on the floor of the Senate, when John Isaacson came into the Senate chamber where where uh, Johnny was being uh, uh, paid tribute to, and they had a wonderful moment there. They were very close, Heath.
3: Uh, they, they really were, Bill, and and it, it's just it's a sad day. I first you know learned about John Lewis as a you know student in Albany, Georgia, and where we were told about his courage and his heroism as a part of the civil rights movement, but to get to work with him, with Johnny Isaacson and to see their friendship that had formed before Johnny got to the House or to the U.S. Senate, working in Atlanta politics and Atlanta business, and then to watch that friendship grow across the aisle. Uh, they symbolize all that is right about America. Uh, there's this great moment, it's called The Hug, where uh, the House members are honoring Johnny Isaacson and John Lewis, I'll break up saying it, but you know comes across which Democrats really cross over to the Republican side in verse motion. They meet in the middle and give each other a hug. This is after Johnny's diagnosis with Parkinson's and John Lewis's diagnosis uh, with his disease. But to see these two gentlemen, in every sense of that word, work across party lines, across racial lines. Uh, for the good of the state of Georgia and for Atlanta. And to see that friendship uh, firsthand was a real honor and a privilege. And, uh, you know, he deserves all the honor that he's getting this week.
1: Thank you for those comments. State Senator Jen Jordan uh, represents the 6th District, which is Pieces of Cobb and Fulton County. And... um uh, Jen, you grew up in South Georgia. You're a product of Georgia schools. You went to Georgia Southern. You went to law school at UGA. So you had a chance to watch John Lewis as you were uh, coming of age yourself in the state of Georgia, yes? Uh, do you have your phone muted, Jen? We don't hear you. Try again.
0: Yeah. Um, there you uh, go. There we go. Um, you know, for me he he was kind of the living embodiment of the civil rights movement. And um and as someone who got involved in politics and, and then of course ran for office, you know, he was everywhere. Um he was at every march, every speech, um, and and really was just an incredibly kind person. I mean, he really represents um who we can be um, as a country and, and really who we should be. Um, and and show the power of grace. I mean, and um, I think that's incredibly important lesson right now when our politics can be incredibly divisive. Um, that we just need to show grace to people.
1: Thank you, Adam Van Brimmer is back with us. He, of course, is the editorial page editor of Savannah News. And uh, Adam, uh, give you an opportunity to just. Tell us uh, you know, what your thoughts are about John Lewis on this week that we're celebrating his life.
4: Yeah, what Tamar said really is, is what has is stuck with me through this whole thing, was seeing that chase on go across the bridge. And I, I, I'm very, very envious that uh, that she was there. And I can just imagine just the, the hairs rising up on the back of your neck and, and the breath catching in your chest as you're watching as a really moving moment. Uh, last week doing a lot of research around here. We have quite a few people here in Savannah who were very active in the civil rights movement yeah, here locally, and the, there was some contrast between what was going on in Atlanta and Alabama and what was going on here. Here, the NAACP was very, very strong, and so John Lewis and and Dr. King and a lot of the Southern Christian leadership folks did a lot of their work. Outside of Savannah, they were rarely in Savannah, so there wasn't a whole lot of crossover. But in talking to the people who were active here during that era, you know, John Lewis kind of had this aura about him uh, of what he was doing. And even though there wasn't a whole lot of of back and forth and, and communication, he was just so admired. And then what he has done since the civil rights movement, I think, has really stuck with people too because a lot of the civil rights Leaders here went on to be stars in local government, but to see John Lewis go on to be a star at the the highest level, I think really has drawn uh, the attention, the affection, and the admiration of the local folks.
1: Okay, well, we're going to be talking about John Lewis uh, throughout the week here on Political Rewind, even as we take on other subjects. Tomorrow, I'll give you a chance to make a last statement, and then I'm going to throw the ball to you to talk about a big development in the legal dispute between the city and the state on mandatory masks. But go ahead and make your uh, remarks about John.
2: For just one last thing, as I've gone about my reporting over the last week or so since to death. Um, something that that's come up over and over again in speeches and in interviews was his humility. Um, you know, and and just how he he was still a regular guy despite being this larger than life presence. And I remember covering him on Capitol Hill and trying to grab him for interviews off the house floor. And sometimes you could wait forever because he would stop and talk to every single doorkeeper, every single yeah. cop, every single, school kid who was there from out of town and he did a great job of making you feel like you were the only person there even though he was being pulled in about 15 directions and you saw that over and over again especially as he talked to regular folks who who were coming out to to honor him you know they might have met him here or there at at an event and it really just stuck with them and you could see that in those tributes across Atlanta and D.C.
1: You're right. There are countless stories about people who, uh, say, were from Georgia, e- e- from the 5th District or not, and visited Washington, and they went to his office thinking maybe uh, they'd get to talk to somebody who worked on his staff or whatever, and almost invariably, if he had the time, John Lewis would show up and want to talk to people himself. Um So, as I said, we'll continue our tributes to John Lewis as the week goes on. His body will lie in state tomorrow afternoon and evening at the State Capitol. And then, of course, the funeral will be held uh, starting at 11 o'clock Thursday morning at Ebenezer Baptist Church, and we'll be carrying it uh, live uh, from NPR on Thursday morning. All right, let's move on and uh, talk about uh, the news of the day. tomorrow. pretty big story, I think. We were expecting that this morning uh, lawyers for Governor Kemp and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms would be in court uh, to argue their case, the case in which the state uh, is uh, petitioning the court to uh, disallow the mayor of Atlanta from requiring mandatory masks and reverting businesses to what they call phase one opening because it supersedes the uh, emergency order the governor put in place. We were all anticipating that was going to happen. We knew they were trying to have some more friendly conversations. And uh, we learned today that, uh, in fact, the judge has delayed the court proceedings to give them more opportunity to mediate the dispute. What do we think is going on tomorrow?
2: Well, it's a a good sign that the two sides are talking um, and that it it could yield an agreement without needing to go through the whole um, court process. But, I mean, we don't know at this point. These are some early signs, um, and we haven't heard a ton from um, the mayor's office or the governor's office. Um, And I'm going to be curious to see what we even know this time tomorrow that could all change.
1: Well, uh, Jen Jordan, we do know Cody Hall, the governor's press secretary, did uh, put out a statement saying they're encouraged, I'm paraphrasing, they're encouraged that the mayor seems to be uh, more open to uh, talking uh, amicably to having a compromise about all this. Is that where your hearing were headed, uh, Jen?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the parties are um, engaged, at least, you know, from what I'm hearing, they're engaged in good faith negotiation with respect to this. I will tell you that it is odd. Um, I mean, because this is a situation, it's not like a money dispute or anything like that in court. Um, really, what it comes down to is um, who has the power um, and who doesn't. And so it, it's, it's not the kind of thing you normally see mediated in court. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it, it's, it's one of those situations where we all just need to sit down and try to do what's best um, for the public. And if the two sides can do that, um, more power to them.
1: Heath, you've been kind of keeping track of this as well.
3: Yeah, I have been. I've talked to a couple of the insiders involved in the case, and there is optimism that, that the last, let's say, 24, 48 hours have led to truly good faith negotiations between both sides. I agree with Jen, right? We've got two. Major issues at play here. One is we need to get more people wearing masks, and everybody agrees with that on both sides of this legal dispute. And then there's a clarification on who has what authority under the Constitution and the Emergency Powers Act. Uh, I think that if you look at the governor's statements and some of the mayor's statements, she's starting to kind of, in, in my words, uh, probably not hers, but clarify. Uh, the voluntary nature of her request to roll back to phase one, and there, uh, the the governor's office and the state of Georgia say there are legitimate places within the city where the you know cities and municipalities do have some authority to. To, to mandate masks, and so the clarification of that, there there is an opportunity for a short-term solution, but I agree with Senator uh, Jordan that we've got to get some clarification on this because when emergencies happen, you don't want 17 mayors going in 17 different directions. Um, but at the same point in time, the governor, the attorney general, we would all be the first to say everybody should be wearing their masks when they cannot socially distance. And, and you
0: know, my thinking is, is that whatever comes out of this, um is going to have implications for mayors across the state. So while this may be the city of Atlanta and the city council versus or Kemp versus them, um whatever the resolution is is going to really have consequences for every other municipality in the state, which is why I think you saw the Georgia Municipal Association jump into the case because they knew that
1: Yeah, and the GMA, we should point out, has sided with uh, Mayor Bottoms suggesting that home rule ought to prevail here, that cities ought to have the right to do what they want to do to protect their citizens against the virus. Adam, uh, what's interesting is there are legal issues at stake here, as uh, both Heath and Jen have uh, told us. I mean, one of them is home rule. One of them is sovereign immunity. That's an issue that that the city wants to raise now, whether or not— uh, a government, they can be sued in, in this as, uh, as city council and mayor uh, or whether they're immune from that kind of lawsuit. But, but, but Adam, when, the, when it comes right down to it, I think what people take away from this, the ordinary folks like me, is does Governor Kemp believe that people would be better protected if everybody were required to wear a mask? Or does he think it ought to be Um, an an issue that each individual has a right to decide for her or himself, even though he encourages them to wear them. And in your city, your mayor, Van Johnson, has uh, taken strong issue with Governor Kemp and his uh, uh, refusal to mandate masks and to take other stronger actions that your mayor believes he should be taking to protect uh, citizens.
4: Yeah, it's one of these things that... Uh, Governor Kemp and and Mayor Bottoms are are kind of squaring off here, but this just as easily could have been Governor Kemp and and Mayor Johnson, who – let's let's not be revisionist history here. There was a point in time where Mayor Johnson was basically saying, we need some guidance from the state on what the restrictions should be. And then the state gave guidance on the restrictions, and it wasn't what Mayor Johnson wanted. So all of a sudden, uh, there was pushback on Mayor Johnson's uh, part. So – Kemp in establishing a, I guess it would be, would it be a floor or ceiling, basically saying you can't, uh, you can't go beyond what my restrictions are. Put the mayors and put all the municipalities in a spot that was very very difficult for them, and it's pretty telling from a pragmatic point of view. And and we learned this here in Savannah about two weeks ago, and I think I saw a story in the AJC yesterday that that talked about the stats statewide. Nobody is issuing citations. Or not wearing masks because yeah. they all realize yeah. that it's unenforceable but I mean, here in savannah the mayor got up in front of everybody and said we're going to start shutting down businesses because we have a three strikes deal and you know the first strike is we're going to give you a warning and the second strike is we're going to give you a ticket and the third strike is we're going to we're going to shut you down and then he was asked well how many tickets have you given out for the businesses and he said none so <laughs> it was like it, the the narrative did not really match the reality of the situation. And I think, from a municipal point of view and a pragmatic point of view, whatever we can do to make to, to encourage people to wear masks is is a good thing to do. And that's why this whole um, this whole you know push and pull contest between between the leaders it, it seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. But we'll see where it goes. And you can bet that if if a court ever does take this up, that whatever the decision is will will be rolled out very, very quickly.
3: And, and Bill, I think for the listeners, right, we don't need to get too legalistic here, but you know, there's a lot at stake here. I do think that the underlying issue is not just the masks. That's what the national media and a lot of folks focused on, but there are also additional uh, restrictions that the and several of the mayors, including Mayor Bottas, were trying to put on businesses beyond masks that I think are a big part of the underlying argument here. And then there's this kind of legal principle, right, that, that is a legitimate and rational thing for the governor to be concerned about. The mayors did call on him to step into this space legally, and to come up with, use the emergency act, and to declare an act, a state of emergency. When you do that under the Georgia Constitution and law, the governor owns that space. We, we the analogy is, is that. If there's a hurricane heading towards I-95 on the Georgia coast, you don't want 17 mayors having 17 different, uh, you know, mandates uh, all up and down the coast uh, if the governor has stepped into that space. So uh, they're always, you know, i just those are examples of the legal principles. Now, home rule is a great principle, and I love the fact that my Democratic friends are all of a sudden for local control <laughs> on an issue. But
2: uh, I've no doubt
3: that the governor will win. Legally, at the appellate court level or the Supreme Court level, no matter what, but it, it does take away from this argument that everybody wants everybody wearing masks where we can't socially distance, and that creates this political absurdity that we're all talking about.
0: So I, I just kind of want to pull it back a little bit and actually talk about the legal stuff because I think that's important here. There have been a lot of statements, um, you know, made publicly by various people and written in articles that. Um, The governor somehow has some incredibly broad emergency powers under the Georgia Constitution. Um, And that's really just not the case. Um, He has delegated powers um, from the legislature. And look, he is the executive. So there are more powers on top of that with respect to the Georgia Constitution. But specifically in this matter um, and in how the state of emergency kind of came to be, it is a public health state of emergency. So his delegated powers from the General Assembly really are about public health and protecting um, the public health of, of the people of this state. And, um, and so that's why it's a little odd that when we're talking about a mask mandate and he's telling cities that they can't do it, um, when we all agree that masks actually protect um, the health of the public, it really seems kind of counter. Um, to the powers that he actually can legally exercise and I think that's where kind of the nut of the the legal argument comes from um, and it, and it is important in terms of you know what more he can do um, you know as we continue to go through this pandemic.
1: Tamar um, let me amplify what uh, uh, Heath said a moment ago and I, I actually did uh, mention it but I want to make sure people, hear it clearly it is true that mandatory masks are not the only issue is not the only issue between the mayor and the governor it is also that the mayor and perhaps more importantly is that the mayor said she wanted to roll businesses back to whatever phase 1 opening is and i'm frankly lost touch with exactly what that means but it puts certain restrictions on businesses and how they can operate and the governor uh, suggest is that the governor's people say is the reason that they sued the city more even more than the mandatory masks because the governor's people are worried about the economic impact on uh, the businesses of of this state so let's just clarify there's more that as he says it's more than just masks
2: we also need to take a step back and look at the the politics of all of this. There there were plenty of municipalities that that the governor could have sued. He could have sued um, Savannah, like Adam was was mentioning. But no, Atlanta is the most high profile example. Keisha Lance Bottoms is of course a, a high profile surrogate for Joe Biden. She's in the running to be his VP. Um, they've had a sort of testy relationship lately, and and you know there there is this idea. You know the governor wants to defend his authority to be able to to make calls like this right now. So. Um, I, I think we need to make those points clear too.
1: Okay, uh, and by the way, the mayor uh, has has made it clear, and this may be one of the reasons they're moving toward a compromise: is that her rolling back business to phase one opening is strictly voluntary. And the state picked up on that. The governor's office says, "Good, that means they're uh, maybe willing to compromise with us." All right, I, I think we should talk about schools because obviously wearing masks, not wearing masks uh, plays into what's going to happen with schools in the fall. Excuse me. We did an entire show yesterday talking about education and and who's opening for in-classroom school, who's going to do at-home learning. All of the big metro Atlanta counties have now decided that they will start the year with online learning. But Jen Jordan, let me come to you first on this because the New York Times uh, ran a piece this morning that I was fascinated by because I hadn't seen it reported anywhere else so far, although I'm sure now it's going to get a lot of local coverage. The city of Jefferson, which is up about an hour northeast of Atlanta above Gwinnett County, uh, the New York Times reports that they have decided that they are going to open fully – for in-classroom schools this Friday. I think that makes them, I may be wrong, somebody will correct me around the state if they're listening, but I think that makes them the first school system to open uh, this year. And uh, they have said, we've got to do it. Um, we're, we've, our students are um, ready to go. We're going to try to protect them, but they're not going to have a mandatory mask requirement. And uh, parents in Jefferson have mixed feelings but seem ready to go along with it. Uh, I just think that's interesting, Jen, as, uh, as everybody out there is debating so vigorously what the best way is to educate students but also keep them safe.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit floored by the decision, frankly. I mean, in light of um, the numbers that are getting reported out from Georgia um, Department of Health, um, and then not even requiring masks on top of it, um, it just really seems like you're, you're inviting um, bad stuff to happen. And whether it's teachers or students, um, we, we don't know a lot about this virus. But what we do know is that masks can help prevent the spread. And then secondarily, I think with respect to schools, until we have um, testing in place that where we can turn around the results quickly, um, and kind of do that consistently week to week. I just don't think that you can provide a safe in-person learning environment. And so, if I'm a superintendent of a school or an administrator, I mean, like I said, I'm just not quite sure how this is guided by the science in any way. Um, and and I pray that we don't we don't see something really negative come out of um, this reopening.
1: Heath, this is a. a, a- Jackson County, where Jefferson sits, uh, was a county that voted for President Trump, with 80 percent of the vote. They have a 3,800 student school system, four schools, 3,800 students. Um, and here's a quote the Times got from uh, uh, somebody in in Jefferson yesterday: "Quote: My kids have been to baseball, wrestling, and cheerleading practices. We've been put out to we've been out to eat." shopping. Yes, I'll be taking precautions, but locking my kids up and making sure they are six feet from their friends is ridiculous. What about their mental health? It's not normal for children to have no interaction. So Heath, here's one of those moments, and maybe it's the New York Times, but here's one of those moments where you put a a pro-Trump equals we're not gonna. Uh, we're we're gonna open our schools because the president has told us to. I'm not suggesting that's specifically what Jefferson is doing, but you can't help but think there is something to that.
3: Well, it, I think there are a couple of things that I think. Right, number one, it reminds me of Jen's old boss, Governor Roy Barnes. He said that the New York Times is never going to miss an opportunity to try to make the state of Georgia or the South look less intelligent than we actually are. they go pick on little Jefferson City schools, I have a little bit of knowledge about these discussions because, you know, there are 20 independent school systems, city school systems in the state of Georgia. They have been having different conversations in their larger counties because they are smaller. They have more room. They are more spread out. They are in more rural counties except for the city of Marietta. Uh, they believe that because they're smaller in size, they have a better ability to help students social distance and avoid a lot of that. And so I think that, to, to be fair to Jefferson City, they're in a county with less, uh, with fewer cases, with a, with a better uh, hospitalization rate than what we're dealing with here in metro Atlanta. And uh, they are a small, small system uh, that can try this out. And, look, there's a lot of common sense wisdom to this, what these parents are saying I can tell you that in the city of Atlanta and in Cobb County, every one of these students that we're protecting from school are out at Walmart, at Chick-fil-A, at all these places hanging out together. They're doing all of their sports together. The only thing they're not going to do is go to school together. And so there's a little bit of uh, street wisdom that I think we're missing here. The other thing I would add to this is, there's great data coming out of Stanford that talks about transmission rates, case rates, uh, and the, and the uh, infection fatality rates related to those under the age of 18. And so you're going to see a lot of independent schools, private schools in Jefferson City lead a little bit of an experiment. We've got to learn from it, but uh, it's very different for young children than it is for 18-year-olds and even 25-year-olds.
1: Uh, all right, we got to get to a break, but Adam, before we do, by the way, uh, f- first Heath, uh, Jackson County, where Jefferson sits, has had 13 coronavirus virus related deaths, an infection rate of uh, 1,067 uh, people per 100,000, so it, it is relatively low. Adam, before we take our break, where what's going on with Savannah schools at this moment?
4: Well the Savannah schools have decided to start virtually. They've pushed back from their planned starting date which was one day next week. They pushed it back two weeks to get the teachers in and go through all of the supposedly new and improved learning management system to do it virtually. And if you look at the academic calendar it shows that virtual learning ends the Friday before Labor Day. But They're also saying that there's no guarantee they're going to go back the Tuesday after Labor Day. So the neighboring counties are going back in person. Uh, Bryan County, Effingham County, uh, the the parents there will have the option to do it uh, virtually, but they are going to go back in person. And Effingham County goes back next Wednesday, and Bryan County goes back, I think, on August the 19th.
1: Okay, I am way, way late to get to our first break of the show today. Tom Faust uh, is uh, saying, do it, do it, do it. So here we go. We're going to come right back after these messages.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News's extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman, um, editorial uh, page editor of the Savannah News, Adam Van Brimmer, uh, Republican consultant Heath Garrett and Democratic State Senator Jen Jordan join us today. Um, Tomorrow, I'm going to uh, throw this to you, but I, then we both got to listen to what Jen Jordan has to say about this. It's kind of a different take on the whole notion of schools staying closed or open. Five thirty-eight had a fascinating piece that they put up, I think, yesterday, uh, and and essentially what they say is that if. They're not urging that schools all reopen, but they're saying they're talking about one of the they think a serious consequence of the decision to stay closed, that um, that it could set back all of the gains that women have made in the workplace. And one of the paragraphs of it, just to uh, uh, give it a little more specificity, says, "What comes next?" In other words, women being. asked to be at home with their children could have disproportionate and long-lasting effects on the careers of countless women across the country. Studies have shown that women already shoulder much of the burden of caring for and educating their children at home. Now they're also more likely than men to have lost their jobs thanks to the pandemic and the collapse of the child care and public education infrastructure that so many parents rely on will only magnify these problems even pushing some women out of the labor force entirely that's a, a take on this whole thing that I haven't heard before, but it certainly strikes me as important.
2: Yeah I mean I'm in my early 30s and have a lot of friends who have just had babies who are just getting back to work after maternity leave and I can't imagine working full-time at home you know with your with your partner also working full-time at home with a baby or a toddler and trying to keep up with all of that. But yeah, you, you they do studies all the time showing that women disproportionately are doing uh, more housework, disproportionately doing more child care. And when you have nowhere to put the kid for, for the rest of the day, um, it, it kind of naturally lends itself to the mom doing a lot more of the work. I know that's not true in all households, um, but it's sure going to make it hard for a lot of the women and uh, a lot of the mothers in my generation to to get ahead in the office.
1: Jen Jordan, this strikes me as another example of how the coronavirus is is amplifying issues that we already were aware of, but suddenly become much more dramatic. And in this case, number one, a lack of, 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 of extensive and affordable child care. the fact that mothers are most often uh, the ones who have to take care of the children in the household. Um, and that f- for in many businesses the women are, the women are the more expendable. Uh, employees. Why don't you speak to all that?
0: Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I mean, this virus has kind of been a stress test on all of our existing systems, infrastructures, whether it's healthcare, And now we're seeing it, you know, not just seeing it, because I've been talking anecdotally to my friends for a long time about, you know, how stressful it is to be at home and to try to do your job, um, but also be a parent, um, take care of the house, And, you know, and also interact with your children in a meaningful way, because if they're not, you know, socializing with other kids or their friends, I mean, you know, you've got to be there for them whenever they need somebody to talk to or something to do or someone to play with, anything like that. Um, It is a really stressful time for moms right now. And it tends to correlate the younger the child is. um, And I think we see that in some of the numbers in the article, uh, the more likely that it's going to have – a really negative impact on, you know, her career or her ability to do her job. Um, but even with moms with older kids, I mean, my kids are teenagers, and I will tell you that it it has been a very difficult few months. And I think that's why the back and forth about the school closings and stuff has really, it's kind of wrecked havoc um, and has made everybody feel incredibly anxious um, about what life is going to look like at least through 2020.
3: Heath? No, look, I, I agree with Senator uh, Jordan there. I mean, we, we've got a, the, the the back and forth. We're going to start. We're not going to start. You know, male and female uh, households are being tossed upside down. Uh, work workforce, right? I know several CEOs of large companies in Atlanta that aren't going to be able to make the decision about bringing people back into the office to help further reopen the economy until they know what the schools are doing. But one of the things that concerns me and it concerns a lot of the folks, not just at 538, is that, you know, at a moment we're having an interesting conversation, uh, or some of us are having a good conversation about racial and economic disparity in this country. Uh, The one thing that could do more damage to racial and economic disparity is is not allowing three, four, five, six, seven-year-olds back in the classroom in-person to learn to read, right? There's plenty of empirical evidence that it's extremely difficult to teach a child to read uh, via technology. They need that in-person instruction, that one-on-one that, that is so critical to this time timeframe. Al- they've already lost the last so six months of education at home. Uh, there's a stat where over 33% of all the New York City school system uh, students never logged in one time to a single technologically offered classroom during that period of time in New York City. So we're talking about major harm, and as Johnny Isaacson and Governor Barnes worked so hard on, if you can teach a child to read by third grade, they can learn for the rest of their life. But if you don't teach a child to read by third grade, then they're behind educationally for the rest of their life. It's such a critical time, and I I hate the the choices that parents are being made to do. And and they're all difficult choices, don't get me wrong.
1: So, Adam, I want to wrap uh, all of this up in terms of what we're doing with schools, um, what we're doing in terms of businesses out there being open by giving you uh, an opportunity, you, you wrote a, a piece for the Savannah News uh, the other morning uh, in which you uh, talked about uh, your concerns about what's what it's really going to take for us to live more confidently that we can have normal activities. You say we're living with COVID-19, but with no confidence we can do normal activities without risk of exposure. We hold out hope for a vaccine or a wonder treatment. We seem in denial about the reality that we won't have either for some time. And then, but you go on and say, until we reach inoculation day, we need to need something that will provide peace of mind that will ease our fears. And you say that is what?
4: Rapid results testing. Quite frankly, I I reached out to our coastal health director and I said, I said, Dr. Davis, there's a lot of talk about vaccine. Everybody's so hopeful for this vaccine but when you talk to people, you know, developing a vaccine and rolling it out and even getting past the trial stage, that's not the end of it. You've got to wait a while to measure it to see how effective it really is. So we're really not going to have any real peace of mind with this with this disease for for a while, certainly well into next year. So what should we then be talking about in terms of of what can give us that confidence? And we talked about rapid results testing, not the testing where they stick something up into your brain and then it takes four days to get the results back, but something where they can prick your finger or point some kind of doohickey at your head, and it'll say thumbs up or thumbs down. And if we can get to the point where we have those, that'll at least give people confidence. The trick then, of course, is to get the people to use them, whether it's, you know, you test yourself at home every day or every other day or how you do it, but there is stuff there right now that's being developed. Antigen testing is, is basically what people are really, what the doctors, the medical community are saying is going to be the real breakthrough. What antigen testing does is it actually looks at the, uh, the COVID cells and can tell if it has the proteins, the little spiky proteins. We've all seen the little graphics of what of what the coronavirus looks like. Well, this test can tell you if those proteins are there. And if we can get to a point where we have those, and everybody can feel confident that they're that they're going to be able to go out and even if somebody is stubborn and doesn't want to wear a mask it's you're not afraid of them coughing at you or something or exposing you then i think we can start to get a little bit back to normal but until then we're just not going to get there
0: yeah and i think the antigen testing is really incredibly important and um for folks, just kind of generally think about, like, the quick strep test or the quick flu test that you take now. That's basically what antigen testing is, where they can do just right. a quick saliva, um, you know, swab, put it in the solution and tell you um, one way or the other if you might have it or more likely than not, and then they can do kind of the long-term um, testing that may take 48 hours plus. But that's exactly it. I mean, until we can um, actually start testing quickly, Um, and and consistently, too. I mean, that just needs to become the new norm. Um, That's actually how we're going to really be able to start opening up schools um, and businesses and and, and really try to contain this virus.
1: Um, All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and when we come back, um, we'll continue our conversation on today's Political Rewind. (laughs) Tamar Hallerman, um, I've been getting emails and a couple of uh, messages through text uh, about a special election that Brad Raffensberger is now called to fill John Lewis's seat. And I want to. There's not a lot to talk about here, but let's be clear about what's happening here. There is a need under state law for uh, for his seat to be filled for the rest of his term. So on September 29th, voters will be asked to elect someone who will serve in that seat until the start of the new Congress uh, next January, right?
2: Yeah, they're only really going to be filling the slot for a couple weeks. But I will say... That yeah. late September, early October, a very critical time on Capitol Hill. It's inevitably when there's a shutdown showdown and you're going to have to work on um, some last minute deal to fund the government. Um, so, you know, there will be some important votes, but it's, I'm, I'm curious to see if, if we see Nakima Williams opt to run in that special election or if she just waits until uh, voters cast their, their ballots in November.
1: Yeah, that's uh, important, Jen. What people were asking me was, well, is is the governor, is the Secretary of State trying to preempt Nakima Williams as the Democratic candidate? No, this is a short-term special election. But it is interesting, Jen, as long as we're talking about this issue, that Secretary of State Raffensperger uh, in the last couple of days, the AJC reported the other day that Raffensperger In talking about Nakima Williams and the fact that the Democratic Executive Committee selected her to be their candidate for the Democratic nomination for the the November uh, 5th district election, had this quote, For the first time in U.S. history, a committee of establishment partisans decided an entire congressional election with a mere 44 political insiders. The votes of the 5th congressional district were not given a fair fight. Uh, nor was there an open Democratic process to decide the replacement of Congressman John Lewis. Ouch, Jen Jordan.
0: Yeah, look, it was, it's a state law. I went back and I looked at it, um, and it's been in place for years um, and just for whatever reason has not kind of come up. So, um, you know, look, it's problematic, but it's the law. Um, And the reason that it's weird here is because this is such an overwhelmingly Democratic district that folks know that whomever the Democratic nominee is will will more likely than not go on to become um, the congressperson. Um, But but that it's it's the state of the law as it is now. Um, And so it's kind of it's interesting that the secretary of state would would throw shade as if it's, you know, a party thing or coming from the Democrats or coming from Senator Williams. But specifically with respect to whether or not uh, Senator Williams would run, I mean, she would have to resign her state Senate seat to do that, right, as soon as she qualified, um, which would then trigger another special election to then fulfill the (laughs) one or two months of her state Senate seat. And that just seems ridiculous to me. But also, though, this could – I would be – I'd be interested to see who's going to qualify for this because it may be a preview of whomever is actually going to run for the seat um, in two years.
1: Yeah, that's, what's going to be fascinating about it. Heath Garrett, I got to come to you because rather, I don't know why Raffensberger decided he had to make a statement like that, but he, he did it fine. It was a partisan statement, but um, so he complains about a committee of 44, picking right. the Democratic nominee for the 5th District. My recollection, it was a committee of one, the governor of st- the state of Georgia, who selected the Republican nominee to run in the jungle election for the U.S. Senate in November, Kelly Leffler. Keith.
3: That's right. That's right. Uh, I think the governor's defense is similar <laughs> oh, to the one Jim okay. Jordan just used. The Constitution <laughs> actually requires him to— do one with an uncertain time frame. I I just find it amusing that my, my Democratic friends with the capital D are ignoring the little d Democratic philosophy that they espouse, uh, you know, given the new AP style world that we live in. But uh, uh, we, we find a little. What does that mean? I, how, what are they ignoring? Well, explain the, that. What are they the, ignoring? You, you could have just gone. You could have. They could have just gone to the special election and the seat could remained unfilled till September the 29th. Which is what happens most of the time. So Jen?
0: No, I I think that what would have happened if, if the Democrats would have uh, failed to choose somebody, the only it you know, you would have probably had a Republican um walk into it. And so um that's just not something that especially in John Lewis's district, um, that was untenable as well. Look, the law needs to be changed, clearly. Um, And sometimes you got to see stuff play out to to know exactly um, what we need uh, to be focused on, you know, when we show back up under the gold dome in January.
2: Yeah, Mike, I have a question for Senator Jordan. Do you think that the legislator is actually willing to tackle this or because it could take away power from the parties and from whoever the governor is, maybe there's a constituency who doesn't want to change the law? I'm
0: sure there is a constituency, and usually it's the people in power, right? But at the end of the day, I'm kind of with Heath. I mean, this is little d democracy, um, and I think everybody was super surprised that this even existed the way it existed. Um, So I'm all for elections, and I'm all for special elections. So, you know, so we'll see. I mean, I think Democrats have, um, you know, the appetite for it, but, of course, we are the minority, at least we are as of today. All
1: right, um, so that happened. Uh, Adam Van Brimmer, we're really running out of time on the show, but I, one quick uh, uh, item that we can probably expand upon if it at another show. Uh, there's an interesting f- uh, fight that's developed over a, a Facebook ad that the Purdue people put up attacking John Ossoff. The Ossoff campaign is... Uh, angry because they say that the uh, uh, photograph of John Ossoff, face, face shot uh, of John Ossoff, there's been an intentional effort to uh, change the length and the shape of his nose, which uh, fulfills one of the most basic anti-Semitic stereotypes and tropes. Um, it's And, and the, uh, the, the, the ad has been pulled. And the Purdue campaign is saying we certainly didn't mean anything. Uh, But it reminds us how it is hard. Uh, Sam Olens would be the first one to say that being a Jewish candidate in a statewide race in Georgia continues to be a difficult challenge.
4: Yeah, and it's it's, from what I've been able to discern from what I've read, it it sounds like it could just as easily be just a just a goof-up mistake that happened. Obviously, his office is saying that it was – the picture was – they put a – they applied a, fil- a filter to the picture, and it enlarged the nose, and it, there's going to – nobody's going to be able to say for sure whether this was malicious or not, and obviously, Purdue has a bit of a history. I mean, he did use the brown shirt reference on the floor of the Senate, what, a year ago or or maybe even a little bit longer. It obviously uh, angered the Jewish community, and, and rightfully so, but it, it, we're at a point in this election where we're looking at every little thing in terms of differentiator, especially when you look at the polls and if you trust the polls that they're so tight right now. And, and Purdue and Ossoff right. are, are looking to, to leverage what they can against each other, and this, was, this presented an opportunity for, for the Ossoff campaign.
1: All right, we're running way out of time tomorrow. Very, very quickly, uh, uh, Adam said one thing, but I want to be careful here. There are a lot of Jewish voters out there who would not call this a screw-up. They would say it's intentional. I I don't know whether it was or not, but I do think it can't be just sort of dismissed without a little bit more thinking.
2: Those voters live in the Atlanta suburbs, which are very swingy and will play a critical role. And some of them lean Republican. And so, if they, they think there's malice on, on Purdue's you know, side, that could cause problems for him in a really critical area.
1: Uh, Heath, we got about one minute left in the show, so you got about 20 seconds to say something about this.
3: I'll just say that having run Sam Owens' campaigns and him having been the highest elected Jewish uh, constitutional officer in the South, not just the state of Georgia, I do know what anti-Semitic politics looks like coming from both sides of the party aisle. And uh, I know David Perdue, he is not anti-Semitic, but he did the right thing by pulling this down.
1: All right. That's it. We're out of time. That was Heath Garrett. Uh, Jen Jordan was here. State Senator Jen Jordan, Adam Van Brimmer from Savannah and Tamar Hellerman. Thank you all for joining us for a terrific conversation today. We're back with a new show tomorrow. I hope all of you will join us. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nick Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.